Welcome to The Socialist Program. This is the audio of our monthly seminar. Subscribe and support this programming at patreon.com slash the socialist program to join live once a month and ask Brian Becker your questions and listen to them as soon as they come out. Thanks so much for your help in keeping this independent show going. We can make this program with you, but not without you. The nationwide uprising against racism following the murder of George Floyd a year ago changed the country. It changed the country not because Congress changed. It's not because the politicians changed. It's because people changed. They changed in the sense that they became politically active. 35 million people were in the streets. And half of those people were in the streets for the very, very first time. I mean, that's amazing when you think about it. And it was black people, Latino people, Arab American people, Asian, indigenous people, white people, young people, old people. It was everyone together. And as Donald Trump invoked the Insurrection Act and told the governors on that famous or infamous conference call on June 1st that they had to either get tough and crack down and use violence against the people in their states, or he would send the U.S. military. We all know what happened that day where, you know, Lafayette Park was cleared, 8th Street was cleared, the people were shot at. Nicole was shot, I think, seven times with stinger grenades and rubber bullets, you know, badly hurt. And so many other people were badly hurt. And after the first police attack, the demonstrators, predominantly young black teenagers, came and were on their knees before the police with their hands up, making it clear that they weren't threatening the police and the police just attacked them. Also, that Trump could get that photo op. And then the next day, the whole country erupted. The whole country erupted. And, and instead of it having the usual impact of scaring people, intimidating people, making people afraid to come out. It had the opposite effect. And that changed the country. I mean, when you have opening day on Major League Baseball, a sport where it's not a large number of African-American athletes anymore, all taking the knee on the first day of opening day, when you have the NFL now celebrating Colin Kaepernick at the beginning of games, even if it's, you know, disgusting, cynical, hypocritical bullshit, it still says something that the country moved. The fact that the Minneapolis City Council said they were going to defund the police, even if that wasn't really true. I mean, all of this talk shifted the political climate. And then you have the demonstration again in the last three weeks where all over America and all over the world, young people, predominantly Arab American, predominantly Palestinian, but many other young people of different races and nationalities coming out in these incredible demonstrations. And if you look at the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and they're all talking about how Black Lives Matter protests in the summer impacted the response to the Israeli bombing of Gaza. And it's so true. It's like the power of the people is contagious. The power of the people was demonstrated last summer and even though that movement ebbed, as all movements eventually do ebb for a time, it manifested itself once again in the past three weeks. And I think as a consequence of what's happened in the last three weeks, I said on the Empire Files when Abby Martin and Mike Preisner were interviewing me this week that I think it's the beginning of the end of the settler project called Israel, not because of a military ending 
but because world public opinion, when it turns like this, when it changes like this, when it becomes active like this, when it replicates what in fact happened with the seemingly omnipotent South African racist, fascist military police state in South Africa, when that happened between 1984 and 1988, it showed that the days of apartheid were numbered. And in fact, they were numbered. So it's a turning point. And this has all happened in this one year in terms of the galvanizing of these mass movements. And they've happened right here in the United States. You know, right here in the belly of the beast, so to speak, where everybody says, oh, the United States is so backward politically or the people are so apathetic or, you know, all of the derogatory comments made. But in fact, the United States, the people, the grassroots has shown that this country can become a motor force for change in league with, in concert with people around the world. And just as the rest of the world went into the streets for Black Lives Matter last May and June and July, everywhere in all continents, the same is happening now for Palestine. So we're at a turning point. So this question is, in last Thursday's episode, you and Dr. Horn discuss tensions, contradictions, and potentialities for splits between various countries in the Middle East and what that would mean for Israeli and U.S. interests in the region. So he asks, what would be the outcome of a U.S.-Israeli split? Would this make Israel more warlike and increase the possibility for war with Iran? Is it even possible for Israel to survive without foreign aid? And also, where is China in this conflict? There was a time when the United States was not joined at the hip with the state of Israel, which means there could, you know, theoretically come another time when the U.S. wasn't joined at the hip with the state of Israel. In 1948, the United States was the first country to recognize the state of Israel as a legitimate state. Sadly, tragically, the Soviet Union was the second country. We could talk at another time about why the Soviet Union did that. But at that time, the Truman administration didn't want to send weapons to the Israeli state and didn't send weapons. In fact, there was a lot of solicitation of large amounts of money from very wealthy Jewish Americans and Ben-Gurion and the original founders of the state of Israel were able to purchase on the open market a huge amount of small arms. At the end of World War II, the U.S., demobilized the military. There was no military, permanent military machine in 1945. So the U.S. demobilized and all these arms became available and they were very easy to procure at cheap prices on the open market. And that's how the Zionists really armed themselves. That's why they had such a huge military advantage on May 15th, 1948, when they used terrorist methods to drive hundreds of thousands of Palestinians from their home and carried out massacres like the massacre at Dair Yassin. But the American government was kind of not 100% about Israel then. In 1956, Egypt was invaded by the Israelis with the support of the British and the French. Eisenhower was the president at that time, and Eisenhower demanded that the Israeli invasion of Egypt stop. The U.S. condemned the Israelis. So did the Soviet Union. And that actually brought the invasion to an end. The Israelis had invaded with the British and the French because Nasser had dared to nationalize the Suez Canal. It was only in 1967 when the U.S. was bogged down in the war in Southeast Asia, in Vietnam, and when the Arab Revolution was at a zenith, it was at a high point 
It was sweeping all over the Arab world and all over the Middle East. And the U.S. couldn't do anything directly by itself. So Nixon created what was called the Nixon Doctrine after the 1967 war, where in six days, the Israelis proved that they could defeat Egypt and Syria and Jordan and seize the West Bank and seize Gaza, seize the Golan Heights. It showed this military prowess. And the U.S. at that time decided to fasten itself to the Israeli regime as an extension of American power to police a resource-rich part of the world that was very revolutionary at that time. And so the Nixon doctrine was to rely on the Shah of Iran and the Israelis on the east and western flanks, the Middle East, as an extension of American power. Since then, everything Israel does, the U.S., even if it criticizes it, basically writes a check for it. So it's been a key part of the geostrategic thinking of American imperialism that they must have Israel. Yes, there is a strong Israeli lobby or the so-called Jewish lobby. It is powerful. It's well-funded. But American imperialism doesn't listen to any particular lobby when it determines its policy. That's not how it works. You know, the tail does not wag the dog. And the U.S. is still with Israel. If at a certain point there was a determination that Israel had become a liability, the U.S. could separate from Israel. Now, the Jewish community in the United States is no longer, I don't think, certainly if things keep going as they are within five years, young Jewish people are not going to want to identify with this kind of racist apartheid state. And already that's happening. There are evangelical Christians who are a firmer base now than the Jewish community for the state of Israel. But that trend is going to keep going. So you could see how the U.S. could at some point distance itself from Israel. There are a couple of things that will stop that from happening. That's all for this preview. If you'd like access to the rest of this seminar and our entire archive of exclusive seminars with Brian Becker, become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We are an independent show and we cannot make this programming without you. Thanks so much for your support. 